Yes, and the reading is in the Red Bibles on page number 306. And there are references to the other Bibles uh, behind me on the, on the screen. So I'm going to read 2 Samuel, starting at verse 3 through to verse 39. During the war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner had been strengthening his own position in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine named Rizpah, daughter of Ea, and Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why did you sleep with my father's concubine? Abner was very angry because of what Ishbosheth said. So he answered, I am a dog's head on Judah's side. This very day I am loyal to the house of your father Saul and to his family and friends. I haven't handed you over to David. Yet now you accuse me of an offence involving this woman. May God deal with Abner, be it ever so severely, if I do not. For David, what, for David, what the Lord promised him on oath, and transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and establish David's throne over Israel and Judah from Dan to Bethsheba. Ishbosheth did not dare to say another word to Abner because he was afraid of him. Then Abner sent messages on behalf to say to David, Whose land is it? Make an agreement with me, and I'll help you bring all Israel over to you. Good, said David. I will, I will make an agreement with you, but I demand one thing of you. Do not come into my presence unless you bring Michal, daughter of Saul, when you come to see me. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, son of Saul, demanding, Give, my give me my wife Michal, whom I betrothed to myself for the price of a hundred Philistine foreskins. So Ishbosheth gave orders and had her taken away from her husband, Paltiel, son of Laish. Her husband, however, went with her, weeping behind her all the way to Bahurim. Then Abner said to him, Go back home. So he went back. Abner conferred with the elders of Israel and said, For some time you have wanted to make David your king. Now do it, for the Lord promised David, by my servant David, I will rescue my people from the land, from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to the, to the Benjamites in person. Then he went to Hebron to tell David everything that Israel and the whole tribe of Benjamin wanted to do. When Abner, who had 20 men with him, came to David at Hebron, David prepared a feast for him and his men. Then Abner said to David, Let me go at once and assemble all Israel for my lord the king, so that they, make, they may make a covenant with you, and that you may rule over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. Just then David's men and Joab returned from a raid and brought with them a great deal of plunder. But Abner was no longer with David in Hebron because David had sent him away and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the soldiers with him arrived, he was told that Abner, son of Ner, had come to the king and that the king had sent him away and that he had gone in peace. So Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Look, Abner came to you. Why did you let him go? Now he is gone. You know Abner, son of Ner, he came to deceive you. 
and observe your movements and find out everything you are doing. Jacob then left David and sent messages after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern at Sira. But David did not know it. Now when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into an inner chamber, as if to speak with him privately, and there to avenge the blood of his brother, Ashel, Joab stabbed him in the stomach and he died. Later, when David heard about this, he said, I and my kingdom are forever innocent before the Lord concerning the blood of Abner, son of Ner. May his blood fall on the head of Joab and on his whole family. May Joab's family never be without someone who has a running sore or leprosy or who leans on a crutch or who falls by the sword or, or who lacks food. Joab and his brother Abishai murdered Abner because he had killed their brother Ashel in the battle of Gibeon. Then David said to Joab and all the people with him, Tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and walking mourning in front of Abner. King David himself walked behind the bier. They buried Abner in Hebron, and the king wept aloud at Abner's tomb. All the people wept also. The king sang this lament for Abner. Should Abner have died as, lawless, as the lawless die, your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered, you fell as one falls before the wicked. And all the people wept over him again. Then they all came and David urged to eat something while it was still day. But David took an oath, saying, May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if I taste bread or anything else before the sun sets. All the people took note and were pleased. Indeed, everything the king did pleased them. So on, the day, so on that day, all the people there and all Israel knew that the king had no part in the murder of Abner, son of Ner. Then the king said to his men, Do you not realize that a commander and a great man has fallen in Israel this day? And today, though I am anointed king, I am weak. And these sons of Zeruiah are too strong for me. May the Lord repay the evildoer according to his evil deeds. This is the word of the Lord. Dennis, thank you for reading that. Uh, as we've borrowed the staging, I'm going to make use of it and come a bit closer to you all. Uh, shall we pray uh, as we look at that passage? Heavenly Father, thank you for your words to us. Uh, and as we look at this passage in 2 Samuel, we pray that we would see more of who you are uh, and what you've done for us in the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, how do we make sense uh, of a passage like this? I mean, accusations, political plots, uneasy agreements, murder, deception, funerals. I mean, it's not easy reading, is it? I mean, in many ways, it's more like an episode of Luther than what many people expect to find in the Bible. But then how do we make sense of a world like this? We only have to turn on the news, don't we, to see all this is still going on. And I think that's really encouraging for us as we come to a passage like this. Because what this passage is getting us to do is look through the messiness to the king 
and the kingdom. We're in a section uh, of the Bible, if you've been with us over the last three weeks, uh, you'll know this. It's explaining how David becomes king uh, of Israel. Um, And the writer is writing uh, for uh, the readers to become loyal to David. But it's not plain sailing. There is messiness in David's house. And as we come to this passage... It's between Abner and Joab. Now, they are two great commanders uh, of the two big armies uh, that are at war. Uh, We saw this uh, last week. Um, uh, They were like the field marshals of of their day. Abner, uh, he was the field marshal for Saul, Joab for David. And chapter 3, verse 1, summarizes where this war has got to. The war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. This is where we're at. David growing stronger, Saul growing weaker. And in the middle of this is where we find ourselves tonight. Verse 6, while this, uh, during the war between the house of Saul and the house of David. David. But we're going to see that it is through this that we see the king. So firstly, uh, let's look at coming to God's chosen king, and let's pick it up at verse 6. During the war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner had been strengthening his own position in the house of Saul. You see, the writer at this point uh, in the story is turning a, a bit of our attention towards Abner, um, now, Abner uh, if, has made some clever political moves uh, that we've already seen in 2 Samuel. Uh, he has taken one of Saul's sons, uh, Ishbosheth, and he had made him king over the northern, northern tribes of Israel. A kind of puppet king, which really Abner wants to control, a way of him gaining more power, which, as we can see, he is doing. And at this stage, as we come to the story, it's perhaps Ishbosheth has had enough. Perhaps he no longer wants to be that puppet king. Perhaps he's realised that, that he is the one who has the claim on the throne. And he certainly, as we read through this, he wants to bring Abner down a peg or two. Because look how he accuses him in verse 7. Now Saul had a concubine named Rizpah, daughter of Ahab. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why did you sleep with my father's concubine? Now, this is a pretty serious accusation that's being thrown at Abner. The taking the concubine of a late monarch was, was like taking the possessions of that late monarch. It was, ta- it, was, it was a scene as trying to claim the throne of the monarch. So it's not just a, a little family feud. This is seen as take, try, him trying to take the kingdom. Uh, and we don't know if it, Abner actually slept with this concubine. I mean, he doesn't deny the accusation in response. But we, the writer isn't, that's not really a concern of the writer at this point. What he wants to see is what the accusation leads to. Uh, that's very clear in verse 8. Abner was very angry because of what Ishbosheth said. So he answered, Am I a dog's head on Judah's side? 
This very day I am loyal to the house of your father Saul, and to his family and friends. I haven't handed you over to David, yet now you have accused me of an offence involving this woman. May God deal with Abner, be it ever so severely, if I do not do for David what the Lord promised him on oath, and transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and establish David's throne over Israel and Judah from Dan to Beersheba. Accusation comes. Abner flies off the handle. Do you see what he's doing? He's saying, uh, he, how dare this king that he has been loyal to accuse him in this way? How dare this puppet king he put in place try to remove his powerful position. It's quite clear, actually, who Abner thought was the, the most powerful one in the relationship. But how dare Ishbosheth talk to him like that? And actually, if we, follow, if we follow the story through, it's the latest in a line of things that have gone wrong for Abner. And I think they're probably all playing uh, into the story at this point. Uh, he's already had to call a truce with David, knowing that his army is growing weaker as David grows stronger. Maybe he's realized that the victory is inevitable for David. So he wants to transfer to the winning side. But he's also seen his political power dwindling. So perhaps he's, he's after this shrewd political move. He can't become king under Ishbosheth. Probably can't even remain his number two at this point. Maybe he can go over to David. There'll be more chance of progression there. As all these things kind of feed in, the accusation from Ishbosheth just pushes him over the edge. He's going to defect to David. He can't work with this guy anymore. And if he's not going to work with this guy, he's going to work against him. And into this whole mix of negative motivations, self-serving motivations, it becomes Abner's decision to defect. And ironically, aren't his words and his actions so much better than his motivations? He quotes uh, in verse 9 and 10 the Lord's promise that he's made. Now, clearly he hasn't fully got it because he thinks that he's the one he's going to achieve the promise for, David. But he, he's heard the promise. His words are good. Uh, and he's going to go to David. His actions are good, but his motivations, well, what are they all about? But in this mix of motivation is where he makes that decision to go to God's chosen king. Turn from being an enemy to David to coming to him. Now, as the story goes on, uh, naturally, David is wary of this uh, enemy's sudden approach. You, know, you can imagine when uh, South Korea first heard North Korea wanted to, to have a meeting. You know, there, there's going to be some nervousness there. And just like there had to be some conditions put in place for those two countries to meet. So David puts his conditions uh, on Abner before they're able to meet. Um, and it's the condition to bring Michal, David's wife, with him. Now, Michal is Saul's daughter. Uh, she'd been given to David in marriage. You can read that in, in 1 Samuel 18. 
Uh, in the meantime, she'd been given to someone else. But she belonged to David. And, and actually, this is a kind of clever political move in some ways from David. Not only is he uh, testing Abner, but he's bringing uh, Saul's house back into his own, strengthening his, cl- his own claim uh, for the throne. And so Abner travels down with Michal to meet David. Now, along the way, he stops, as, uh, as you see in verses 17 and 18, trying to get people to switch their allegiance to David. In verse 19, he spends uh, a particular effort with the Benjamites, because that's with Saul's own tribe. And he's working his way down. And as we get to verse 20, it seems he's this influential man has had success. Whatever his reasons for coming to David, he has certainly achieved what David asked for him to do and both what he set out to do. And so David welcomes him in verse 20. When Abner, who had 20 men with him, came to David at Hebron, David prepared a feast for him and his men. Then Abner said to David, Let me go at once and assemble all Israel for my lords, the king, so that they may make a covenant with you and that you may rule over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away and he went in peace. Abner, this once enemy, comes to God's chosen king, David, and David welcomes him with a feast. A feast for his enemies. In fact, they enter this into agreement. And do you see, uh, David sends him away in peace. That, that word in peace, shalom, has that idea of, uh, of harmony and safety. You know, here's a man who was an enemy, comes in, is not just welcomed, but is sent away in harmony with David. Whatever his motives were for coming, he's come to the right place to make peace. This is a glimpse of what God's kingdom is like. Former enemies come to God's chosen king and find peace. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 to 22 says, Once you were alienated from God's, and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusations. Enemies coming to Jesus. Sinners coming to Jesus. Uh, and if we're honest, uh, as we do that, in mixed, emotion, in mixed motivations... You know, we want to do the right thing. We know what's right. We know what God has promised. But isn't there a little bit? We like things a little bit better for ourselves, easier for us. Motivations are mixed. But coming to God's chosen king, we find a welcome. We find a peace. Even someone who was as far away from David as Abner tried to destroy him can come and find peace. How much more can we with the Lord Jesus? And that, that welcome um, and that acceptance 
of those who come, even if they're far off. It's emphasized further as we go and look at uh, the next um, section, defying God's chosen king. Because as we follow the story back in 2 Samuel 3, enter stage right, Joab. Now, he's not been there, this other commander, uh, when Abner and David chatted. He'd been off winning another battle for David. But when he's told about Abner's um, visit, he's not happy. Look at verse 24. So Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Look, Abner came to you. Why did you let him go? Now he is gone. You know Abner, son of Ner, he came to deceive you and observe your movements and find out everything you are doing. See, David may have built up some sort of relationship, some sort of trust uh, with Abner, but Job's not going to. In his mind, it was quite clear what should have happened. David should have taken the opportunity he had to get rid of Abner once and for all. He thinks this is some sort of deception. I guess he's probably thinking David's at best a bit naive, at worst just being weak and stupid. And that's the last straw for him. Not only had Abner killed his brother, now he's making a power play for his position. So Joab is going to do something about it. Uh, He calls Abner back to Hebron behind David's back. Uh, And as he arrives, he takes Uh, Abner to one side, quietly into a dark corner, and he murders him. Shocking, isn't it? Here's one who is close to David, murdering. Not only the murder, you know, there's legal grounds for that, but this is the man that his king had sent away in peace. And the writer he wants to get that is repeated in verses 22 and 23, Abner was sent away in peace. This is an act of defiance against the king. And we mustn't go at this point uh, thinking that just because Joab was close to King David, that this is the way that followers uh, of David should act. Abner was completely working for himself at this point. Uh, He may have tried to dress it up as a good deed for his ruler, but it's clear it's not right. But but at the same time, we must be aware of our attitudes where we may look like we're working for Jesus. We might try and dress it up in that way, but really we're working for ourselves, making me look more important in church, making me look clever in my small group making me being the recognized, well-received, important one. I can dress it up in service, but it might be self-recognition. But thankfully, God's kingdom doesn't depend on the deeds and attitudes of the king's follower. It depends solely on the king. And so David demonstrates how different to Joab he is. Look at verse 28. Later, when David heard about this, he said, I and my kingdom are forever innocent before the Lord concerning the blood of Abner, son of Ner. May his blood fall on the head of Joab and on his whole family. 
May Job's family never be without someone who has a running sore or leprosy, or who leans on a crutch, or who falls by the sword, or who lacks food. Here is David's curse uh, on Job and his family, showing that they are the guilty party. You know, the family's brought in, it was, it was Joab and his brother involved, it's the whole family, and it's, it's like the judge who's passing down the sentence. Here is the guilty party, here's the verdict. And then David, on the other hand, he wants to stress his innocence. In fact, he does so, as you read through the chapter several times. This is not something he wants to be seen as part of. He is different to Joab. And the people believe him. In fact, look how far David goes. He gives Abner a state funeral. He gets Joab and all his people to mourn at this, at this man he's killed. David himself walks behind the bier and laments. What happened is a tragedy. And David wants everyone to know this sort of thing has no place in his kingdom. See, David manages, through his words and his actions, not only to show his innocence to the point where people are weeping for Abner, but also to establish his kingdom. Not by force, but by the attractiveness of the king. So, Our final point tonight, establishing God's kingdom. That's where the writer wants us to see that this is going. You know, 1 and 2 Samuel is, uh, shows us David's three-stage rise to being the king of Israel. We've seen this this diagram um, before. We're, We're in that bit where he's king of Judah. He's not yet king of all Israel. And it would have been easy, wouldn't it, to start reading uh, the story at 1 Samuel 16 uh, and try and think how David, once he's anointed, is going to become king. And I guess none of us would have thought it would happen like this. But into this story, the writer is skillfully dropping a ray of hope. Look at verse 31, the end of verse 31. King David himself walks behind the buyer. King David. We're so used to hearing those words uh, as uh, people living now that we kind of miss the point. This is the first time, other than in quotations, where David is called King David, given that full weight of his title. No longer just the king of Judah or the promised king, but King David. Throughout all this war, all this murder, all this deceit, David's establishment of a kingdom is continuing. Saul's house is weak. David's house is strong. And he is now King David. Now we've got another chapter to wait until we actually see that properly. But it's inevitable. And the writer uses this point um, at the end 
to show us a bit about who this king is and remind us what sort of king David is going to be. Uh, Look um, with me. So he starts off by saying David is a good king in verse 36. All the people took note and were pleased. Indeed, everything the king did pleased them. Please could, uh, according to commentators, be translated more strongly as good. Everything David did was good. Good in the eyes of his people. Despite all that's going on in the kingdom, David is still good. David is a good king. And David, secondly, is an innocent king. Verse 37. So on that day, all the people there and all Israel knew that the king had no part in the murder of Abner, son of Ner. His subjects may have not been innocent, but David was, and the people believe him. They all knew his innocence. So he's a good king, he's an innocent king. And verse 38, he's a gracious king. Then the king said to his men, Do you not realize that a commander and a great man has fallen in Israel this day? Just Abner and Joab in this chapter, you know, they've been uh, you know, throwing out all sort of angry and horrible words. Look at the words that David uses here. Positive words about a man who'd been so long his enemy. Gracious king. Uh, and finally, he's a gentle king, verse 39. And today, though I am the anointed king, I am weak. And these sons of Zerah are too strong for me. May the Lord repay the evildoer according to his evil deeds. In contrast, again, to Abner and Joab's trying to demonstrate their their strength, David says, I am weak. I am gentle. Though he is the king, He's not going to have a kingdom that comes about through a battle or through severe severe treatment of his people. It's going to come through gentleness, as he's demonstrated. See, throughout 1 and 2 Samuel, behind all the music of everything that's going on, there's this constant drumbeat. David is becoming king, just as God has promised. The kingdom is being established despite all that messiness that's going on around. And the same is true today. David's kingdom is is just a shadow of Jesus and his kingdom. And so if it's true that God keeps his promises to David to bring him, to make him king through the messiness of everything that's going on, through those accusations, through political plots, through the murder, how much more is it going to be true that in the messiness of this world, God's chosen king, his son Jesus Christ, will be established? Yes, people still try to defy King Jesus today. Yes, his kingdom on earth will seem messy and actions will be taken Um, that don't seem to fit in. But we can be in no doubt that actually this kingdom is still being established and will be fully established. How do we know that? Enemies of King Jesus are still coming to him and finding a welcome 
and finding peace. The king continues to be good, to be innocent, to be gracious, to be gentle. So look through the mess of this world tonight and see King Jesus. He is still king and his kingdom is coming. You might want to chat uh, over food about this question. Um, what helps you to remember that God's kingdom will be established? Because it will be established. Not just for a short time, but into eternity. That, that kingdom that is promised of justice, righteousness, peace, harmony, security, perfection. Nothing's going to stop that kingdom coming about. And as Christians, we're part of it. Our place is guaranteed in it. God's chosen king. Jesus is our king. So let's keep coming to him. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you that through Jesus... Though we were once alienated from you, we were enemies. We are now reconciled to you by Christ's physical body through death. We are now holy in your sight. We are without blemish and free from accusation. Thank you, that means we're part of this kingdom that is coming. And as we look at a world that looks so messy, help us to look beyond that and through that to King Jesus, seated on his throne and to the kingdom that he is establishing. Bring us again to him tonight. Amen.